Alas, we're on to chapter 10, and this is actually, this continues on from where we left off last week. This isn't just a new random passage. This is the continuing answer that Jesus is giving to these ruling uh, elites, these religious leaders that are challenging him and trying to shut him down. And so he goes right from uh, where we ended last week and and launches into this dialogue, uh, which is one of the most well-known dialogues in all of Scripture. And uh, so today we're in John chapter 10. We're going to go from verse 1 through 21. Can I ask you to please stand one more time out of respect, uh, not for me, but for the reading of God's Word. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So let's all Listen intently together to God's inerrant word. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out, will come, will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And there was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the blessing they are to us, Lord. We... Lord, become so frustrated by the world sometimes when we place our hope in it. But you let us know through your word that our hope is in you and that you will not disappoint us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts to that, Lord. Give us minds 
to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So, um, I know this has been going on for a while, but I've just, this week, have just become extra depressed about the whole election cycle. And I don't know why it's just hitting me this week. I mean, we've been dealing with this for a while, right? It's not just the choice of candidates. It's not just the obvious grabbing for power. It's not just the obvious self-serving that's going on. And the fact that the idea of being a public servant seems to be a dead art. It's not just the fact that there seem to be huge blocks of people that will justify any kind of behavior in order to then in order to fulfill their own ambition in political lanes and just the total brokenness of the system all around us and just being in dismay. How did it possibly get so bad? Not just that, (laughs) although that would be enough to make anyone depressed. But when you think about it, it's just cycles throughout history, throughout history. You know, we had corrupt and and self-serving kings and so let's try democracy. Then we have self-serving democracy, so people try socialism, then they have self-serving and ambitious socialism, and then, you know, God knows what you're going to try after that. Um, But it's just over and over again, no matter what we do, the elements of human ambition and self-serving power always rise up to the surface and take control and just leave us in dismay. We saw, Nisa and I saw this movie on Friday night called Hell or High Water. I see it. It's an amazing movie. Do not take the kids, but go and see it. It is a commentary on our, on our world. It's a commentary of the quiet desperation that people live in our world and, and, and the despair that people feel over just being abused by power. It, is, it, it touches, it hits a nerve that is so deep. There's, uh, you know, it's these bank robbers who are robbing the bank that basically robbed their mother and paying them back with their own money. And then it, it's just blurring the line between good guy and bad guy. Who's the bad guy? Is it the bank robbers? Is it the bank? Is it just everything? And there's a scene where, the, where one, of the, one, of the, one of the deputies, the Texas Ranger, is a Native American and he has this awful racist bigot partner, Jeff Bridges, who actually really loves him, but is just uncomfortable and, 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 and um, awkward. And they're sitting across you know, the, from the bank waiting for these guys to show up, and they have this dialogue where the Native American says, says to Jeff Bridges, he says, you know, you, you, know, you, came, you people came here and took our land, but it's some, somebody came and did that to you when you were in Europe and turned you into the person you were or you became. And then you came here and took it from us. And there's this line where he says, all this, he looks out and he says, all this land was my ancestors' land until these folks came and took it. And now it's being taken from them, except it ain't no army doing it. It's those, mm-mm, mm-mm, right there. And he points to the bank across the street. And there's a, a Christian commentator that is, uh, was reviewing the movie. And he says, from the beginning of time, Since the fall in the garden, humankind has been taking advantage of each other for selfish gain, and this movie does a magnificent job of painting a very clear picture of just how broken the world is. And it's true. Everywhere we look horizontally for leaders, 
Everything is corrupted with sin and everything becomes corrupt and everything fails us eventually. And so it was in Jesus' time too that during Israel at that time there was a long history of corruption in the high priests and the political offices of the day and the, the, the Maccabean revolution. The, the high priests sold the nation out to the Greeks and things got worse from there and Herod was put into charge. Herod, who wasn't even Jewish, was king over all of Israel, and we know about his corruption from top to bottom, and the high priests were political appointments from Rome based on the wealth of their families, and things were just messed up from top to bottom. The whole system was rigged to benefit the powerful, and the regular people paid the price for it. Just oppression. And that's how the world has always been, and that's how the world will always be. If it weren't, for Jesus. In this passage, Jesus gives us the one alternative that we have to corrupt leadership. And so the big idea, the thesis of this whole passage, the one thing that John, that Jesus wants us to know more than anything is this, that in a world of bad leaders, we worship a beautiful king who serves us as the gate to heaven. In a world of bad leaders, we worship a beautiful king who serves us as the gate to heaven. Let's take that one piece at a time. In a world of bad leaders. You know, in the art of biblical interpretation, one of the most important questions you can ask of the text is, who's the audience? How would they be hearing what is being said here? And the audience The people Jesus is talking to are the Jewish religious experts. These are men who have memorized the Old Testament for uh, in 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 large degree, right? I had a friend of mine, a pastor, when I was at the Rock, and he had gone. He had got accepted to a Hebrew university to study Torah, and he was the only guy there that hadn't memorized the Pentateuch. Still done to this day. In that culture, huge chunks of, of, of information were able to be memorized. It's one of the reasons that they, in a large way, were much smarter than we are, or think we are. Just because we have toasters and iPhones doesn't mean that we outrank in intellectual capability the ancients. But these men had memorized huge chunks of the Bible, and they, while we, it's not clear to us by hearing Jesus speak these words, it's very clear to these men that he is basically giving a commentary on Ezekiel chapter 34 and that he is naming them as the bad shepherds of Israel and saying, not just saying this is about you, but God has prophesied about you in your own Old Testament that you are the bad guys spoken about by the prophet Ezekiel. Listen, let me read the first 10 verses, see if you can pick it out. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, you who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so they were scattered. That one word, I think he just 
in John 10 when he's saying the sheep are scattered, he's using that one word to just bring their minds back to this passage. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey My sheep have become food for the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. And he says, this is about you. Written in the Bible 400 years before now. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hands and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. So Jesus uses these key words to bring their minds to the fact that Ezekiel had prophesied this about them. And he is saying to them, this is a turning point in the gospel. Things are changing right here. Jesus is cutting ties. He is saying, judgment happening. You are being removed from being the shepherds of Israel and new shepherds will be put in your place. It's a heavy, heavy turning point in this gospel. Here, let me give you three characteristics that he, Jesus, names of them as what bad shepherds are in this passage. First, he says, the bad shepherd is a thief and a robber. Look at verse, chap- verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. These are the worst of the worst. These are the men that are purposefully in the ministry to bilk the poor out of money. These are the people, these are the prosperity teachers that, that course through Africa and, 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 and take the money from the poor. Rich, wealthy men who are using the church and using the office to steal money from people. The second, the bad shepherd is a hired hand. Let's look at verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Not quite as bad as the outright thief but still someone who's in ministry just for their own gain and really could care less about what happens to the sheep. I told you a while ago a story about R.C. Sproul when he was in seminary. He had met men that were coming into seminary who were agnostic, who didn't even believe in the gospel. And he said, what are you even doing here? And they said, well, there's good money in this God business. They were there for the money. They were there to get what they could get out of it. And they weren't there to be shepherds to the sheep, to be there and to sacrifice for the people. They were there for their own purposes. And the third, a bad shepherd is a stranger to the flock. Verse 5. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. 
which is kind of the necessary result, right? If you're a thief or if you're a hired hand or if you don't really care about the flock, they end up becoming strangers to you and you to them. I mean, we have, you know, we came from a church of 18,000 people. We have friends of ours who have never met their pastor. I mean, there's a way to grow a church, and I think when in Presbyterian government system with elders, there's a way to build a big church with a lot of elders and still have the ability to shepherd your people. But if you get, if you're 18,000 members, you have five pastors, there's no possible way to know the people or for them to know you. You are, you're strangers. Strangers to your people, and they're strangers to you. You know, and it's not, it's not just, I mean, this is, this is a passage that's, really hits pastors, right? So like I read this and I'm like, man, I'm just feeling convicted. My ambition, you know, my ambition is tempered. My self-serving is put out in front of me, you know? And it's, it's a, we read through this, it's just like speaking to me, speaking to the leadership in the church, and it, but it's also speaking to you to hold us accountable to these things. And also if you have friends who aren't, receiving the kind of pastoral care that they should be getting to like gently be able to talk to them about it and say, hey, this is what the Bible says about New Testament churches and are you getting this kind of care? But it's also something for all of us together, right? We, it's easy to be a stranger in the church if you're not involved with the lives of people, right? It's easy to come in and walk out. It's easy to not really be involved and... and um, this is one of the reasons, even in a small church like this, even, what do we have here? We have 60 people in here right now. It's easy to come in and go out. Do you know, does everybody know everybody in this room? No, we don't. Isn't that amazing? At just 60 people, we've already lost touch with knowing everybody in the church? Like, well. So, how, how do we cope with that? One of the we need to big reason or one of the big things we have to cope with that, and I'm going to give a shameless plug right now for our mission groups. We just had a meeting last night. We talked about some really great ideas for mission groups going forward from here, but there's probably about half of us are involved in one of the groups, and there's another half of you that aren't, and so I want to just encourage you. We're going to make it a lot more accessible and more visible about how to get involved with the group. We're going to be talking to everybody personally, but consider becoming part of a mission group and part of that, co- that community where you're serving together, where you're evangelizing the community together, where you're learning together, and when you're in going out and, and enjoying life together. We're going to be incorporating all those things into our mission group. So let me encourage you to do that as in the coming weeks and months we start rolling out um, how we're going to improve our mission groups. Here's the scary thing about this passage is that He's saying these things to these men, and these men have no idea that that's true of them. These men probably think that they're great servants, and that it's all at the same time, they, at the same time, they're doing all these things that Jesus is accusing them of. And so that should signal to us, too, that because ambition and self-centeredness and, and, and self-serving are so it's, they're so subtle and so powerful and it's so easy for the fissures of them to work themselves into our lives and the life of the church that we need to constantly be on guard against that kind of thing 
or, I mean, we're not, I don't think we are going to turn into a prosperity church where we're just going out and bilking people for money. That's probably not going to happen to us. But we could easily become the kind of church that becomes strangers, that aren't really here to even know anybody or help anybody else or each other. And so, from that passage in Ezekiel, I was meditating on this, well, actually a few months ago, probably, and I pulled out these seven things that, that Jesus says through the Spirit to Ezekiel about what pastoral ministry should be all about and what we should, what, what we should be thinking about as we're thinking about how do we be a church together. And a lot of these, some, you know, some of these are more geared towards pastoral ministry, of course, but it really includes all of us. How do we re- relate to one another as a congregation? Number one, Feed the sheep, do not feed off of them. That one's kind of self-explanatory, right? Don't come to church to get something, or especially, you know, there's... (laughs) Now I'm not going to say that. Um, (laughs) Don't come to church just to get something. Come to church to give and to be a blessing to other people. And that's not to the exclusion of coming here to get something, right? We're all coming here to get something. We need things from the Lord. We're coming here to hear the word and be rejuvenated by it. We're coming here to receive the sacraments and being strengthened by it. So I'm not saying just don't come, expect those things, but as we come, come to be a blessing to each other. Strengthen, and here's the next three go together. Strengthen the weak, do not despise them. Heal the sick, do not push them out. Bind up the injured, do not abandon them. Well, it's real, I think it's, when you're in a church setting, when you're doing ministry, it's real easy to push out the difficult people and to make church and to focus your idea of ministry and to focus your service on the people that you really enjoy being around, the people that are really easy to be around, and the people that are really easy to be loved. But we, as a church, have constantly prayed that God would send us broken people and people that are hurting. And a lot of times, people that are hurting are people that have been sinned against. And people who have been sinned against are people who sin and they are broken. And sometimes they're very hard to be around and very difficult to be around. And so what this is encouraging us to do is to really be on guard about making the church a social club, but making it a city of refuge where people are welcomed in and that we are are aimed at being, and we, we have the expectation culturally of being sacrificial in our relationships so that when people that are hard to love come, it's, no, it's, not, the, it's not the shock. We're like, okay, you're hard to love, yeah, I'm gonna, but that's what we're here for. That's why we come. That's why we are a church. I mean, there are a lot of social clubs where you can join. There's a lot of cool coffee shops that you can go and hang out at for those kind of things. But for here, for this church, We come here to nurse each other to health and to strengthen each other, to bind each other up, to heal the sickness in our heart that the world has caused, the fiery arts of the devil. We're here to help each other. Bring back the strays. Number five, bring back the strays. Do not say good riddance. We as a church practice church discipline, which means that we have a commitment to people that are members of this church, that if they start going south or get caught up in some awful sin, we don't just wipe our hands and say good riddance to them. There's one problem person gone that we don't have to deal with. We go and find them. 
and help them come back. And that's a church-wide effort. Six, seek the lost. Don't wait for them to come to us. Meaning we go out into the community and we're just present in manifold ways to bring people in. And finally, rule with gentleness and compassion, not with force and harshness. And I think the big takeaway from all that for us as a church is, is how do we as a church, how do we build a culture within our church that we consider ourselves to be a city of refuge type church? We're not trying to in, in attract the coolest people, the hippest people, the, you know, just the most spiritually mature people, but we are trying to incorporate everybody, especially people that nobody else wants, that have nowhere else to go. How do we build our community, how do we build our cultural expectations to we're the kind of church that welcomes everybody and we love them and we are loved because, hey, let's be honest, (laughs) we all have a lot of unlovely in us, right? We all have a lot of sin and Jesus loves us and he knows all about us and so we want to be a church and I want to encourage you to be praying about how do we be a church where we are fully known but yet still fully loved? The definition of, of beautiful earthly community. So, how are we going to do these things? Is there some sort of model that we could maybe look to that would show us how to act in love in this way? Is there anyone that we can emulate? Well, there is. In a world of bad leaders, point one, point two, we worship a beautiful king. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. There's two things you need to know about the good shepherd. The first is that shepherd here is really, I think when we think shepherd, we think, driving sheep, dogs chasing sheep, or maybe you think, you know, maybe you think of um, just caring for sheep or being loving. In In the Near East, in the ancient Near East, the idea of shepherding was much more inclusive. There was the shepherd's rod. In the, in Psalm 23, we talked about the rod and the staff, right? The rod was to protect. The rod was to take out the lion or the bear or the wild animal or the wolf that came into the congregation. So there was a protective almost military aspect to the idea of shepherd. And then there was the idea of rescue, of, of protection. You guys, a lot of you saw that, the, the Facebook video of the sheep that burrowed itself down into the hole. When it's like, this is how Jesus shepherds me. You guys pulling the sheep out of the hole, just covered in mud, you know? I posted that, I was like, average day, right? Pretty average day for me. There was that, and then, and then there's also you know, the care and the provision for the sheep, bringing them to safe places, giving them water and food. And so all that to say, the idea of shepherd became, in the ancient Near East, where it was so prevalent, it became a metaphor for kings, not just, it's not, and not just Israeli, Israeli kings or Israelite kings. It was about Assyrian kings used the title of shepherd for their people. Um, the Israelite kings did as well. And so what Jesus is saying here. He's not just saying, I'm um, like a shepherd and I'm going to take care of you. 
he's using that metaphor of shepherd in the same way as those ancient Near Eastern kings did. And he, what he's saying, he's making a claim here to being the divine and true king of Israel in front of these religious elite rulers and to all who are listening to him. He's making a claim to be Israel's true king. And the second thing you need to know about the good shepherd is that that's the Greek word for good in this title is a lot more expansive than just our idea of good, where we might say, well, that was a good sandwich, that was a good movie. We mean it was good is opposite to bad. But in the Greek, the word kalos it incorporates the ideas of praiseworthiness, of excellence, of morally good, of being noble. And the number one usage for this word is beautiful. Not just physically beautiful, but holistic, comprehensive, aesthetic beauty in person, in character, in being. And so Jesus is really saying, a better translation might be that Jesus is the beautiful king. And that's who we serve. Two things this also says about Jesus in contrast to the bad shepherds. What is it that makes him beautiful? Well, number one is he's not a stranger. Jesus is portrayed here, and he's portraying himself as having this intimate and close relationship with his sheep. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now, he and the Father are very intimate right? So on the one hand, he's saying he, what, what the good shepherd is doing or what the good shepherd does for his sheep is bring them into union with himself, thus bringing him into union with the life of the triune Godhead. That's a huge claim he's making right there. But even, even you know, just on a, on a more understandable level, I mean, thinking about sharing in the life of the triune God, let's you know, try and wrap our minds around that one for a moment, shall we? But on a more understandable level, he was saying, I know my sheep, my sheep know me, I know them. They know me, they know my voice, and they're not fooled by strangers. And here is where there's a huge tie-in right here with chapter 9 in the blind man. Do you remember when the blind man was being pressed by the Pharisees? All of that religious power being pressed on that 13 to 15 year old boy saying, this is not what you should believe. This is what you have to believe. And they pressed him and he didn't break. Why? Because he was listening to the voice of strangers and he wasn't fooled by it. But when Jesus came to him in the temple, the first time he had ever seen Jesus, but he knew who he was. Why? Because he heard his voice and he knew his voice. And so this is a, right when Jesus is talking about, they know my voice, they know me. He's using that blind man as an illustration of what that looks like. And the same is true for us. When Jesus came to you, however that happened, however it played out, you recognized his voice. You knew it. Because he came to you personally. He came to us, all of us, in individual ways that we were able to understand. And when he spoke to us, we knew who he was. His spirit gave us understanding. You know, in the ancient Near East, 
Shepherds were a little different than they are here. We think about shepherds driving in the ancient Near East. They really do. The shepherds know their sheep so well, they call them out of the pens, and they have little pet names for them, right? By, based on their own characteristics. So they'll say, come on out, long ears, or come out, white nose, come out, fuzzy tail. And I... <laughs> I wonder if Jesus has pet names for us based on our <laughs> characteristics. Come on out, stubborn. <laughs> Come out, prideful. Come here, dope fiend. Maybe our names are based on how he sees us through his son. Come out, precious to the Lord. Come out in the beloved. Come out, cherished creation. Come out, beautiful son. Come out, beautiful daughter. He knows us by name. Revelation says he's given us a new name. And he's promised, if he brings us out, he's promised to stay with us and to protect us. And he's promised to never change his mind on that. You are precious to the Lord. And he will never leave you. The second thing, in contrast to the bad shepherds, is that he has not come to steal, kill, and destroy. But he's come to give life. Look at verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When he talks about abundant life, he's not saying, I'm going to set you up in a mansion, I'm going to put you some Ferrari and a Mercedes Benz in the driveway, fill up your bank account. He's not talking about an abundant life of material possessions. He's talking about something so much better than that. You know, the definition for that word abundant, abundantly, it's one of the, another one of those Greek words that stuffs all these ideas in it that's bigger than our English can capture in one word, but it, it, means, it means this. It says, pertaining to a quality so abundant as to be considerably more than what anyone could either expect or anticipate, that which is more more than enough, beyond the norm, abundant, superfluous. It's like the way God throws grace out in a, this overabundance, this over-excessive, overabundant grace and love that he throws out on it. Except here he's talking about life. It's not just a material life. It's not just a physical life that he's offering, but it's, he's talking about giving us eternal quality life, an eternal quality life in all of it, whatever that might mean, but that life that even starts now as we're put in touch with the powers of the age to come by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is giving us life that's characterized by the, 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 the expression of, of, of all these characteristics that God has given us in his image. 
the ability to love, the ability to, to extend grace, the ability to worship God, the ability to be content in our circumstances because we know that we have eternal life and the new heavens and earth in a trust fund that will never be taken away. And we are just waiting until Jesus comes and gives us all that he has inherited. It is abundant, superfluous, over-the-top, over-excessive beauty and life, uh, eternal quality life that will never, ever, ever, ever end. So the question is, how is he going to do this? What is the most beautiful thing about Jesus? Point three. In a world full of bad leaders, we worship a beautiful king, point three, who serves us as the gate to heaven. Look at verse nine. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Notice it says, I am the door, not a door. In our membership questions, when we bring people into membership, the first question that we ask them is, do you believe that the Bible is God's word and that in it, he has told us the only way that we can enjoy his favor and be with him forever? And the hard word in that, obviously, is only. Because what we're saying is that there is no other way to heaven there is no other way to eternal life outside of Jesus. And that's a hard thing for people to deal with. I was working with a, a guy that's coming into membership next month who comes from a Jewish background, and, and we were talking about this, and he was like, that makes me sad because I'm thinking about my family, you know? And that is a sad thing. You know, so I encouraged him to not take up ostrich theology and just put his head in the ground and say, I don't believe it because, but rather to believe it and then come into the kingdom and pray. Pray for his loved ones who don't know the Lord. <clears throat> but it's hard, it's hard. A lot of people have big resentments about this. I had a huge resentment about this particular thing as God was leading me into the kingdom. And, you know, eventually I just... I kind of got over it by just realizing that I just decided not to worry about it because by that time, Jesus had shown me how beautiful he was and so I knew for a fact that he was my way, that he had come to me. And over that, after that, God has shown me why it is that he didn't have to provide any way for us and that it's a miraculous merciful act that he provided a way for us. But let me give you two reasons why that's not such a big deal, why it's understandable, or why it is that we can worship Jesus alone. Why is it Jesus alone worthy of our worship? The first one is that he is the incarnate God. Look at verse 18, where he says, no one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord I have authority, which means power, to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. Now let's forget about, just not even worry about the fact that everybody knew who the good shepherd of Israel was based on Psalm 23 and about 15 other passages from the Old Testament. So when he shows up and says, I am the good shepherd, 
everyone knew that that was a, a claim to deity. But just look at what he's saying. He's saying, I and myself have power to lay down my life and power to take it back up again. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 or chapter 1, he says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, his resurrection is what declared him to the entire world to be without a doubt exactly who he claimed to be. And in Acts 13, Paul says that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so we put all those things together and we come to understand that Jesus, who has all along been making these astonishing claims to deity, which culminated in chapter 8 when he claimed the memorial name of Yahweh for himself, claiming deity for himself and that, now he is claiming powers that only God has. In other words, I have the power to raise myself up from the dead. And brothers and sisters, if he can do that for himself, that means he absolutely can do it for you. And trust me when I tell you, you're going to need someone to raise you from the dead because you're going to die. I just had a friend of mine from high school, 47, died of breast cancer. Just like, you know, it recovered and then hit and then within a few months, just dead. It happens. It happens to all of us. And so, number one reason why it's okay to worship Jesus alone is because Jesus is the incarnate God and he is worthy of our worship. But the second reason is even more. He is the incarnate God with the power over life and death. See, Jesus isn't like the other gods of our imaginations who we can buy off with our good works. Jesus, uh, his incarnation into the world was for a specific purpose. He came purposefully to lay his life down for us because we so needed it. And unlike the hired hands, Jesus did not run from the approaching danger, but he came and ran into it. And in so doing, his death and resurrection opened up the gate, the only gate between heaven and earth. And here's the truth again. We all have hearts that are riddled with ambition and with selfish pride. And if you put any of us in the right circumstances, we would start trying to amass power too. It's just true about us. We also have corrupt hearts and we desperately need someone to come and die for us, to pay the price for us. Except who would die? Who would come and die for a worthless person? Who would come and die for a sinner? Who would come and die for an ungodly enemy? Would you? Paul says in Romans 6, that for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The incarnate God did not come to earth and suffer and die for us because we are good. 
He came and did it because he is good. He's more than good. He's beautiful. Amen? In a world of bad leaders, we worship a beautiful king who serves us as the gate to heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. Father, we mourn our sin and we mourn our selfish hearts. We mourn our corruption. We so desperately want to love you the way we ought. We so desperately want to be grateful in the way we should. We so desperately want to love each other in the way that we know we should be doing, but we keep running into our own selfish and sinful hearts, and Lord, and we We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be more like you, but at the same time, it drives us to the realization of how desperately we need you and how beautiful you are, that you had came and lived for us and died for us so that we might be with you forever. And you've given us new names and you've called us into your kingdom and you have made us safe and you've given us everything we could ever want or dream and you have promised us that we will never die. And there will come a day real soon when you will make everything all right. And that is what we trust in, and that is our hope. So Lord, help us to hope in that. Help our unbelief, and help us to live in a way consistent with what we believe about who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. Help us to be light and salt in the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.